I'd like to turn back in God's word to Psalm 15 to have that passage open in front of you. And tonight we're looking at heavenly warnings and to look over really this psalm as a whole. And really its theme is very clear, it's very straightforward for us to see, and that is that, that God is judge. I mean, you just have to look at the opening verses and you can see that this is made very obvious. Verse 1, the mighty one, God the Lord, has spoken. Verse 3, our God shall come. Verse 4, he shall call that he may judge his people. Verse 5, gather my saints together to me. Verse 6, for God himself is judge. And it's a, a consistent teaching of the word of God that God is judge, that he's going to judge all men in the end. And here in our passage, God is speaking to us. And friends, we must listen to what he says. You know, it's so different from the rest of this life where there is so much noise, so much talking every moment, you know, constant uh, opinions and persuasions, all those things. There is so much of man that often we hear little of the voice of God in reference to him. You know, for many, it's as though God never speaks. Even those who, who claim and maybe say that they speak for God in recognized religion, they are actually utterly oblivious to what God is actually saying in his word. Now, we know that God speaks in various ways. He, he speaks in creation. The Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God. We live in a world where sun, moon, and stars, the earth itself, is shouting out to us in that sense, regardless of a place or language, in a way that they're all recognized. The heavens are a, a testimony to the being and existence of God. Now, whether there are those who acknowledge that or want to run from that, that's clear. But the fact is the, the heavens, the created order around us, it testifies, it proclaims to us of God. God also speaks in what we call providence. In the events and circumstances of life, he, he speaks not only in good times, but also in tragedy and in accidents, in judgment, even in death. All these things should have a voice and speak to us. And God speaks supremely in the Bible, which is his word. And the question is, are we listening to the voice of God? Do we hear the voice of God? You know, many people, maybe you this night, they're, they're so busy talking, they're so full of themselves and their, their own ideas that they never stop to listen and never certainly to the voice of God. And you know, this psalm reminds us that the day is coming when actually every mouth will be stopped. All the voices of this world will be silenced and all will be compelled to listen to what God has to say. As one explains, men have a great deal to say about God in our day, but in the end, God will have something to say about us. And if we are wise, we will listen to God's voice now in his word, in this psalm, as we are given a preview of how God judges. And very simply tonight, there are four divisions in this psalm which we're just going to look at and work through. And the first division is verses 1 to 6, and that is that God is coming to judge. These opening verses tell us God is coming to judge the earth, and it's certainly true that God is going to judge everyone. The Bible is clear about that. You know, I hope that we all understand that tonight. You know, whoever we are, we cannot escape him. 
You know, we, we can't go under the radar, as it were. We can't think that we'll just get through life and, you know, it'll be all right in the end. And, you know, that's not the case. He will judge us all and all the rest of mankind. Doesn't matter where we're from. Doesn't matter what language we speak, our background. God is our judge and he will judge us. And it is not a light thing to be judged by God. It's easy for us to, you know, say it. But I wonder if tonight we realize what an incredibly serious thing this is. And God really intends for us to be silenced by this, to, to tremble before him, to realize who he is. You know, look at verse 3. A fire shall devour before him. It shall be very tempestuous all around him. And this is a, a picture of God coming to judge, but in particular, it is a picture of God coming to judge the church. You know, the Bible tells us in the end that God will judge the wicked and the unrighteous and those who hated him and hated his word and hated the Savior and remained in rebellion against him, wanted nothing to do with the gospel, those far away from the things of God, God will judge in the end. But this psalm is concerned with the judgment of those who are found amongst the Lord's people. And you say, well, where do you see that? Look at verse 4, that he may judge his people. Well, that's not everybody, is it? Or verse 5, gather my saints together to me, those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And so these people, they are under the word. They, under the old covenant, are offering the sacrifices. Now, of course, in the New Testament, we come only by faith in Christ and trusting him who is the ultimate sacrifice, the fulfillment of all the old covenant types and shadows. And what are we to say about God judging his people? Well, my friends, we need to understand that God judges the church now in this life. He will judge sinners at the end with eternal consequences, but the Bible says the church is being judged now. Think of 1 Peter 4, 17. You know, the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And when we understand this, we realize that when we engage in the, the means of grace, when we come together to hear the word and to worship and such things, we're not here on our own. You know, we do these things in the presence of a holy God. And his eye is upon us. Christ is in the midst of us. You know, we have such a low view of these precious things at times. And that's why Paul says that we must do things decently and in good order. We are in the, the presence of angels, he says. And not only the presence of angels, but in the presence of the head of the church, Christ. You know, what we're engaged in tonight, he's here. Think of the opening chapters of Revelation. We're told that Christ stands in the midst of the candlesticks amongst his churches. We are in his presence. And it alters our entire perspective of what is happening. And the question comes, are we listening to him? Are we listening to his word? Are we taking heart to the truth? And in our text, God is described as a, a great judge sweeping in about to, to take his seat. And we're before him. He has his angels with him, witnesses to the truth of his judgment. Those who can corroborate the truth of what he says concerning us. And God is going to pass sentence upon those who profess some kind of interest or other in the things that belong to him. And it reminds us that when we come to the house of God, we are to observe the sense of the presence of God. 
And we are to remember that in a special sense, he is here when his people come together. And he sees us and he knows us. And so God is coming to judge. And in the first instance, to judge his church. And then verses 7 to 15, the second section, there is a great warning that comes to his people. And in this section, the Lord is addressing true worshipers, those who are really his people, the godly amongst them. You know, we have to understand, don't we, that the majority of our meetings together are to a greater or lesser extent mixed. There are those who really know the Lord and there are those who don't. That's true tonight. There are those here who know and love the Lord and you know there are some here who don't. There are those who are born of the Spirit, those who are not. And of course, we long that all might come. We long that all would come to the Savior and come under the sound of the Word. But there is a distinction between those who are the Lord's, the true church, and those who are not. And that has a bearing on what we do and the way that we organize ourselves in the light of the Word of God. And that's why as far as we're able to discern, only true believers are welcomed into fellowship and membership. But in verses 7 to 15, God is addressing the genuine believers in the world, and he describes them. He says, hear, O my people, and I will speak. But what does he say to his people? Well, simply this. He says that he will not blame us for the shortcomings of our worship. And you say, well, what do you mean? Well, there are many things about our worship which are, are worthy to be criticized. You know, think of how poor my words are in prayer or how incapable we are of expressing ourselves on spiritual subjects. You know, there's a, a poverty about my preaching and reading and praying. And, you know, we're limited. All of us are limited in our expressions of devotion to the Lord because of our sin and our frailty. And that's just a reality. And that's something that the Lord highlights. And he says, you know, it's not about form. You know, some say, oh, well, if you change the form, make no, it's about our hearts. You know, the Lord knows this and he tells us in his, his great generosity and his kindness that he won't reprove us for, for shortcomings in those respects. He understands that. He understands we're dust. But he does warn us against something very serious in verses 7 to 15. And it's the continual danger that we all face of becoming routine, of just going through the motions unprepared hearts and minds. You know, we can understand that's a danger. You know, we, we come into the house of God and familiarity can breed complacency. At worst, it can breed contempt. And we sing and we read and we pray and we listen and then we go on our way. And the danger is that we treat these precious, eternal things lightly and we just like to become mechanical you know, again, it's not about form. You know, even what seems spontaneous at first, you know, becomes routine after a few times. The issue is our hearts. And we can fall into the trap of, of praying without thought. You know, of, of sitting without really listening, of, of singing with our mouths and, and not with our souls. You know, I'm guilty of it. And if you're honest, you will be too. Our minds and our hearts can be far away even though we are physically here and maybe sometimes we've even slept through the whole thing. And that's what God is warning his people against. 
And the language is addressing the, the old covenant arrangements. We see that. And the, the danger, you know, that's highlighted is that his people would think that by offering up the sacrifices that actually they're doing God a favor. And the mindset is that, you know, that God somehow needs these sacrifices, that he's, he's dependent upon his people for his food or, or for his satisfaction or his strength. You know, and that's the indictment, you know, the, the sacrifices insult God as a needy God or a dependent God. They had a view of God that somehow they were, they were adding to him by doing these things. They slipped into the religious notion that these, these gifts, these offerings were, were meeting God's needs and that, that he would be at a loss without them. Do you know, we can fall into the same trap thinking that when we come to the house of God by offering up our sacrifice of praise, you know, that we're doing God a favor. You know, that we're, we're gaining his favor by our own merits. You know, it's, it's a subtle and unhelpful way of thinking. And we need to realize that we are guests in his house. And that our best efforts, you know, are unworthy of him. And he is so great and glorious, he doesn't need us. And God is warning us, those are his people. He says, you know, and there's a, that passage there, verse 12 onwards, he says, look, if I were hungry, I wouldn't ask you for food. You know, the cattle on a thousand hills are mine. I, I don't require anything from the hand of man to make me satisfied. God doesn't need anything. We can't give anything to God but what he has first given to us. You know, what, what do we have but what we've received? And so the Lord is showing us what the, the true spirit of worship is. And I challenge myself and I challenge you. It is to worship God with a humble spirit and a contrite heart. And the question is, is that true of us? Do we have a right heart before the Lord in Christ? Do we have a right attitude to the means of grace? You know, that, that it's a privilege to come and honor in the presence of God. You know, that it's a supreme privilege to be called by the name of Christ. You know, how, how vast the benefits we possess. You know, it's a high honor due to our, our union with Christ. You know, what we have been given in him to be a child of God and, and washed in his blood and clothed in his righteousness. Someone who knows the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, called to be a witness for the King of Kings. There's no greater honor than these things. But all too often that sense of privilege is lost upon us. And we forget so easily just how much the Lord has done for us. And we can then develop a wrong attitude and lose sight of the gospel. And we can start to do some religious things because we think then that, you know, God will give us the favor that we want. And whether it's in worship or giving, we're, we're trying to gain from God and secure some blessing. Ah, so far away from the gospel of grace. You know, there's a Roman Catholic priest called Martin Boas many years ago, sometime after the Reformation, and he was in Switzerland. And he was visiting a lady who was dying, but she was actually a true believer. And Boaz began and he sat down and he got all his paraphernalia out and he said, well, you've got nothing to fear. You've lived a devout life in the church and all your endeavors and all your service, they have earned you eternal life. Well, the lady, a true believer, turned to the priest and said, sir, that is no hope to me. I'm certainly not looking to any merits of mine. I am a sinner but I have been saved by the grace of God. All my hope is in the Lord Jesus. 
and his finished sacrifice. I don't dream for a moment of contributing any merit to what my Jesus has done. And the priest was staggered. He'd never heard anyone speak like that before. She'd spoken with such love for her Savior and a, a real knowing of him. And he, he'd come with an attitude, just like in this psalm, which Christ rebukes. He was full of the importance of man and what man can do and a religion and all those things. And she was full of a sense of her unworthiness, but trusting in Jesus. And God used that encounter to deliver that man from dead religion and bring him by grace to life in Christ. And he left the established church behind, the Catholic church, and he went on to serve the Lord. You know, God tells us what he wants of us. Look at verses 14 and 15. Offer to God thanksgiving. Thank him for who he is. Pay your vows to the Most High. And this wonderful, wonderful text, call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. You know, we can't add anything to God. We, we can't give him some merit. But what pleases him is when we're thankful to him. And when we're praising him for his deliverance in the Lord Jesus, when we magnify his grace and his mercy and his love in salvation, and we delight in the fact that as his people, we can call upon him and know that he will deliver us. To look to him in humble dependence and, and honor God as the, the owner of all things and to raise those Ebenezers and say, thus far the Lord has helped us and we trust that he'll carry on helping us. Maybe you stand on the brink this week and you know there are things that are going to be taking place and your heart is heavy. But if you're in Christ, you have a wonderful God in heaven who loves you and will hold you and keep you. And he says, call upon me in the day of trouble. Call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you. And friends, if we're believers, we have to beware a mindset that belittles God. God is an absolutely unstoppable, unfailing, constant, indescribable power and fire and joy and help. And he never wearies, never wearies in the slightest. And he is omnipotently enthusiastic about his gracious purposes in your life. It's a wonderful thing. He owns all and loves to glorify his power and grace by delivering his people who call on him. And he comes just when it's best for us and we will glorify him for it. And so I ask you, do we acknowledge him to be Lord over all our lives? Are we living with thanksgiving? Do we thank him for all that we have and thank him for all that he is? Because that's what we should be. You see, when we know the Lord, when we have come to Christ, Oh, we want to praise him and to thank him. You know, we realize that we've got nothing, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. And we thank him and we live a humble, consistent Christian life by his grace. And so the challenge comes, you know, don't think that you can add to God. Don't just go through the motions. Come to that real position and keep clinging to what is true and alive and real. And then in verses 16 to 21, it then moves into the next section. And so we see that there is God the judge, God warns his people, and then we find that God is the judge of the hypocrite in verses 16 to 21. Notice there is a great change, but. So he speaks to his people, and then he says, but to the wicked, God says. There's a change of direction. Now, 
Who is God speaking to here? Well, he's been addressing his own people, those who, for all of their stumblings and failings, they love him and know him, and in spite of their weaknesses, they, they are his people, they know the Savior, their hope is in him, and his finished work on the cross. But then, God speaks for another group of people, from the genuine believer to the one who might look religious and seem to be a true Christian, but has no grace in their heart. Those who make empty profession. You know, it's the same pattern that the Lord Jesus used in his earthly ministry. That's why we read Luke 12. He addresses those who are true believers and exposes the religious hypocrites in very clear terms. You know, what's a hypocrite? Well, a hypocrite is an actor. They put on a mask. They pretend to be what they are not. You know, they, they might say a lot, but all the time their heart is unclear. And the Lord, you know, speaks of people who draw near to him with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. And that's why, as a fellowship, you know, we need to be real. You know, what, what's and all, as it were. No pretense. You see, the hypocrite wants to pretend and, and give a certain image. And, you know, the Lord calls them out in Matthew's gospel as, as whited sepulchres. Whitewashed graves. You know, in Old Testament law, if you touched a grave which was associated with death, you have become ceremonially unclean. And you can whitewash a grave so that you can try and make it look like it's not a grave, something else. And people might touch this monument and without realizing it, they become defiled without knowing what they've touched. And Christ says these hypocrites are like that. They appear outwardly to men to be beautiful and religious, but inwardly they are full of sin and corruption and death. And what does he say to these people in this psalm? Well, to those who are around the Lord's people, around the means, but are still in their sin, he exposes them and says, you've got a double life. Look at verse 16. What right have you to declare my statutes or take my covenant in your mouth? Do you know, that verse is incredibly striking. How many have stood up today in churches up and down the land, you know, maybe with robes or whatever else, and claim to speak for God and have not spoken a word of truth? And it is clear that no unconverted man should ever be near the preaching of the truth. No unconverted man should teach the word of God in any situation. No godless person should ever presume to speak about the things of God or explain the word of God. And God says, what right do they have to take my word on their lips? And in verse 17, he says, seeing you, you hate instruction and cast my words behind you. Instruction, of course, means the word of God. It is the, the teaching of the faith, the gospel. You know, the challenge again, it comes to us so clearly. It is possible to hear many good things preached and explained and taught. But the question is, are those things in your heart? You know, some of you have been under the gospel many, many, many times, but it's not in your heart. You're still hard against the Lord. You don't believe him. You don't know him. You know, there are many who come under the sound of the word, but, but inwardly they resist it, they hate it, they, they hate the truth. They hate to be told that they're sinners. You know, maybe even this week we think of the outreach of the church. There have been those who have sat under gospel messages and yet they resent it. They cast the words behind them. They don't want to know when they should be repenting and believing. 
And verse 18 onwards, sees the Lord describe this terrible situation where a person can give the appearance of being religious, can go to the house of God and yet lead a double life. And it's one thing to behave in a certain way before the eyes of people at church, only to be something very different when you're alone or you're with others in the world. Double standards. One thing one minute, another thing another. You know, and there are many who struggle with that, and often amongst younger people who, you know, pretending on a Sunday, but they live different lives the rest of the week. The Lord sees. And it's a challenge to all of us because... You know, we can do those things mentally as well as physically. We can appear as though we're, we're taken up with the things of God, but really, we're in love with this world and with sin. It's the heart, you see. It's the heart that matters. And I ask you tonight, how is your heart? Do you, do you genuinely love the Lord Jesus? Do you genuinely love God and love his grace and love his word? Is the, the cause of God your delight? Or are you just pretending? And actually, you're hankering after the attractions of this sinful world. You know, in verse 20, God speaks of another aspect of hypocrisy. It's possible to be religious and secretly speak terrible evil against others, especially the Lord's people. To judge and condemn and gossip. You know, to appear friendly and winsome, but all the time to have this evil spirit of malignancy. You know, we've all stumbled and no doubt all been unkind in our thoughts of others, times when we've forgotten ourselves. And God says, I know. I've seen your hearts. I know your lives. I know your secret thoughts. You know, gossip and slander can do so much harm in churches. And God highlights the awful nature of it. And he does so that there will be repentance, that there will be a turning from that, that we might be brought low in humiliation and recognize our need of forgiveness. And he goes on, verse 21, these things you have done and I kept silent. You thought I was altogether like you, but I will rebuke you and set them in order before your eyes. You know, God is telling that he kept silence. It's a very striking thing. You know, friends, God does not always punish sin at once. Sometimes, you know, when people do outrageous things and terrible things there's no immediate punishment and we can wonder but he sees it all and he does not always judge it once but he will you know there are times when he does bring immediate judgment you think of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5 you know their sin was clear they died the same day as they committed their sin punished for their lies and their hypocrisy or in the Old Testament you know, you think of Achan in the book of Joshua. He disobeyed the Lord. He tried to deceive the Lord and hid his forbidden treasure under his tent. And he fooled everybody, but not the Lord. And judgment came. And there are other examples too when God judges immediately. But in his purposes, there are times when he keeps silent. He knows, he sees, he will bring justice. But the danger is this, that when God keeps silence, sinners get bold. You look at the world. You know, they're living and doing whatever they want to do. They don't care about what the word of God says. They think there's no God. They think that they can live without any consequences. And as it says in verse 21, you know, if they have any idea of God, they reduce him down to their level. They think that God must be like them. And so, you know, God is loving and he's accepting and he's patient and he's slow to anger. He'll be okay in the end and he'll just turn a blind eye to evil and 
give a wink to their wicked dealings. What does the Lord say? He says, I will rebuke you. And I will set them in order before your eyes. In other words, judgment will come. Justice will be done. And if people have not run to Christ in repentance and faith, they will face everlasting punishment. I know this section in the psalm is, it is so sobering. Because if we profess Christ, we had better be the real thing. We had better be truly converted, have the real grace of God in our hearts and be trusting the Savior. It is terrifying and woe be to me and you if we are play-acting and if we are treating the things of God lightly and carelessly because God sees. He sees your heart and your mind and if not tomorrow in the day of judgment, he will certainly tell the whole world what we really are like if we are not what we profess to be. And it's a call to us all to, to cast ourselves on Christ, to, to be consistent and honest before God, and to live our lives as in his sight, and to look no one else but to Jesus. That's the challenge, the danger of hypocrisy. And as we finish, you know, the psalm brings it all together with a clear warning and a promise Verses 22 to 23. You know, the distinction is set in place once again. Those who are the Lord's, those who are not. His own dear people and the hypocrites. You know, for the hypocrites, those who do not know Christ, look at verse 22. Consider this, you who forget God, lest I tear you in pieces and there be none to deliver you. You know, there are those who want to create a God suited to how they think he should be, tame, acceptant, tolerant of anything. That's not the God of the Bible. God is holy, and for those who remain in opposition against him, he warns, and he warns clearly and compassionately that there will be judgment, and there will be a tearing into pieces an everlasting woe and punishment. You know, if you're here tonight and you're not converted, you know, I'd urge you to consider the dreadful reality that you face if you continue to throw off the Lord Jesus. And I will plead with you to run to be delivered. You know, to heed this text, to, to consider these things, to consider God and to run to the only way of deliverance in his Son and to know that in Christ you can be forgiven. You can be washed. You can be given a future and a hope. You know, do you realize the state of your own heart? Do you realize the, the shortness of your own life? Do you realize the need that you have to be saved? You know, and as you're sitting there, you know you can say in your heart, Oh, Lord, I am a sinner. I can see the end of those without Christ, and I long to be rescued. Please save me. Christ is my only hope in life and death. Please forgive me. Please deliver me. Please have mercy upon me that I might not face that. Please bring me to know life in Jesus, all of grace and to your glory. You can't earn it. You can't merit it. But this salvation is freely given of his grace. And we're enabled to come and take what God has given to believe and to be saved. You know, how long that you would, if you're here this night and outside of Christ, run to him. Run to him and trust him. Come to the rock of ages. Come to the Lord Jesus. And what about for those of us who are his? Verse 23. 
for his true people. Whoever offers praise glorifies me, and to him who orders his conduct to right, I will show the salvation of God. You know, what have we ever done? All our best efforts are as nothing. What hope have we to be taken to heaven when we die? Our only hope is the kindness and the love and the grace of God in the gospel. Deliverance in Christ. And when we have been brought to turn from sin and self to trust the Savior, how we praise him. How we delight in him. How we want to live for him and for his glory. And how we look forward to the prospect of being with him forever and ultimate deliverance. God is judge. He will judge. He will judge his people, judge his church, and in the end, he will judge those against him. And I pray that we would be those who look nowhere else but to Jesus Christ, who heed the warnings of this psalm, that we wouldn't be pretending or play-acting, but that we would know with clarity this night that we are safe in the Saviour. My dear friends, do not leave this place without being right with him. What an opportunity is given to you, and by his grace, may you take it. Amen.